0: Russell Moore. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and while you're turning there, let me tell you what a joy it is to be here because this congregation, I I think sometimes when when we worship together, we don't know what the Lord is doing with our worship and with our ministry outside of our own borders. And I want to tell you, this congregation is such an encouragement to many, and I'm one of those, uh, not only through your pastor, but also through what goes on here uh, every single uh, Sunday morning. And so I'm, I'm thankful to God for the spirit that is present here at Strong Tower Bible Church and for what God is doing propelling this congregation to the nations. Luke chapter 4, I'd like for us to read starting with verse 14 and read on down through verse 30, Luke four fourteen through 30. And since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit, they're just as if Jesus himself were standing here verbally speaking these words to us. So would you please stand with me in reverence for the voice of our king speaking through the scriptures? The word of God says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Holy God, we're standing here right now and we know that we are not just standing in this building in Nashville, Tennessee, but Lord, we know that your word tells us that when we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, that we are joining ourselves to an already existing worship service in the heavenly places. And so God, we're standing here right now in the midst of myriads and myriads of angels, before a number that no man can number, and before the presence of Jesus Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that right now you would silence any spirit in this place that would exalt itself above or beside the name of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, would you cut out of our hearts this morning anything that is not shaped like Jesus Christ. And would you conform us into his image that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters? And we ask this in his name and in his name only. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, what prepared you to do the sort of thing that you do now, uh, working in Washington, D.C. and working in all of these uh, controversies and so forth. And what I always say is it was being a youth minister and starting out my, uh, ministry as a youth pastor completely prepared me, uh, for everything that I'm doing right now. Because if you have to navigate a group of 12 to 16-year-olds in a church van uh, for 10 hours and all of the drama and all of the backbiting and all of the things that can happen there, then you can deal with politicians and journalists and people like that. But one of the things that stuck out to me when I was doing youth ministry was this controversy that started that I really didn't know how to handle uh, in the congregation where I was serving. Because when I first got there, I realized that we had a lot of teenagers in that congregation who were leading double lives. They were teenagers within the congregation that were giving no evidence of having been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet when you would try to confront them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would always say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know about all that. We took care of that back in vacation Bible school. There was a prayer that was said, there was a hand that was raised, and they knew all of the right Sunday school answers to everything. But there was a group of other kids, though, in that community. It started coming on Wednesday nights, And these were kids mostly who were fatherless. Most of their mothers worked for the local Air Force Base, and they'd moved around a lot all over the country. And none of these kids had ever been in a church before. And not only that, none of these kids had ever been around kids who had ever been in a church before. So they would come on uh, Wednesday nights, some of them kind of covered in a cloud of marijuana smoke. To the point that I cannot testify that I wasn't high a few times (laughs) teaching the Bible from secondhand smoke. And these were the kids who would say things uh, in those Bible studies that would be shockingly inappropriate in a church, but they didn't know that those things would be shockingly inappropriate in a church. They were the kids who would call me Father Moore because the only person uh, in ministry that they'd ever seen was a Catholic priest in a movie somewhere. And these were the kids that created a great deal of controversy because the parents of the first group of kids, the church kids, didn't want them there. And they would come to me and say, we think that these kids that are coming on Wednesday nights are a bad influence on our kids. Now, the interesting thing to me was that these were the kids who as we were teaching through the Bible, they were the ones who would come up after and would ask me questions like one young man asked me to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you believe that this guy was dead and then came back to life i do for real for real and his response was dude that's crazy (laughs) now the first group of kids they were not shocked or disturbed by the message of the gospel of jesus christ They assumed that the gospel of Jesus Christ was just part of the culture that they'd always grown up in. The second group of kids heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as strange and freakish and maybe even dangerous, which means that they understood something of what the gospel was talking about. So what I had to say to the parents of the first group of kids is, I'm afraid that your kids might be a bad influence on them. Now, here's why this is important. The country and the culture that we are living in right now is moving in most parts of the country from a culture that looks like that first group of kids to a culture that looks like that second group of kids. And there are a lot of Christians who are wringing their hands and panicking about that as though that were bad news. That is not bad news. That is good news for the church and good news for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that we can see that is in what is happening here on this occasion when Jesus goes into his synagogue in his hometown and begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what you and I have lived around in places like Nashville, Tennessee, For a long time is a kind of cultural Christianity where people have to be affiliated with some sort of church or some sort of church tradition in order to be seen as good people, good citizens, good Americans, in order to find a spouse, in order to find a job, in order to make real estate contacts, in order to be elected to office increasingly, you do not have to be affiliated with a church or with a religious tradition in order to pursue the American dream, which means that that kind of cultural Christianity is going away. We do not have more atheists in America today. We just have more honest atheists in America today. Now, cultural Christianity can be great if there is no help. Cultural Christianity can keep some bad things from happening and cultural Christianity can keep some morals and some values together. And if there is no hell, that is fantastic. But if the scripture is right and there is appointed to every man a time to die and after that comes the judgment, then cultural Christianity is the worst thing that can possibly happen to you because there is nothing worse than standing before God without the righteousness and atonement of Jesus Christ, believing all of your life that you were acceptable before God because you fit into a culture of fake Christianity and almost gospel. Jesus here comes into the synagogue and he does a number of things that he calls us to do if we're following him. And the first of those things is the announcing of the gospel, announcing of the kingdom. Jesus stands up and takes the scroll... And the Bible tells us here, Luke tells us that he turns to this passage in Isaiah and he stands up and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach good news. And to preach good news to whom? To the poor. He has anointed me to announce freedom for the captives and the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus points them to the future, and he points them to God's promises to bring about his kingdom. Now, if we lose sight of that, then we are not going to be able to interact with the people around us in a changing culture because we are not going to know who we are. Jesus defines himself By the Spirit's anointing, and the Spirit's anointing is an act of kingship. When God goes and anoints David, how does he do it? He does it with a prophet anointing him with oil, and then the Spirit coming upon him. And Saul has the entourage and Saul has the title, but David has the spirit and he's the one who then is able to defeat the enemies of God and to move forward in the kingdom that God is building. Jesus says, God has anointed me. God has given me this word to speak to you of the future of God shaking up the things as they are now and bringing about a different reality. One of the problems that you and I constantly have to face is that we are wanting to see our lives in terms of the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. We think long-term planning is to plan for our lives when we're 100. If we really believe what Jesus is announcing here, then that means that a long-term view of our lives takes into account trillions and trillions of years, not decades, not even a century. We see and we understand that whatever we are going through and whatever we are passing through right now is temporary and that God's kingdom is what is, is eternal, which means... That we have a different view of what is normal. We tend to think that the lives that we live and whatever is that we experience is normal, and we judge everything else by our experiences. But if we really see this view here that Jesus has of the kingdom of God of the year of Jubilee that continues and continues and continues and cannot be stopped by any other force, then we're going to evaluate everything going on in my life. Everything going on in my community, everything going on in my family, everything going on in my church, everything going on in my world, according to the kingdom of God and not the other way around. Which means that the things that the world values are turned upside down. And the things that the world wants are turned upside down. Jesus says, I'm here announcing to you the year of the Lord's favor And then he sits down and says, and I want you to know this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And one of the problems that we see in the culture around us is that everyone wants to get to a point of security and of assurance. And the same thing is true for those of us within the church. We will have no word to say to the culture around us if we lose sight of where God's favor is. Jesus says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Where is God's favor? God's favor is upon Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people who want to know, is God pleased with me? And they want to judge that on the basis of whether or not they are thriving financially. If I'm thriving financially, then that means that God is pleased with me. Or they'll want to say, am I doing well in terms of my health? That means that God is pleased with me. Or is my family doing well? That means that God is pleased with me. Or am I able to perform morally better and better and better on a chart? That means that God is pleased with me. No, 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 no. God's favor is seen if you are united to Jesus Christ. Because if you break the law at any point, you are what? A lawbreaker if you are united to Jesus Christ, God is pleased with you He sees you exactly as He sees Jesus of Nazareth this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And so it doesn't matter whether or not you have cancer, whether or not your spouse walked out on you, whether or not you've been unemployed, whether or not you're being beheaded by a terrorist. God's favor is seated at the right hand of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that ought to give us the confidence to be able to move forward even when we have people around us who are hostile to us who don't get us, who don't understand us, who disagree with us. Jesus calls us to announce the kingdom of God. But then notice what he also does. He calls us here to engage the culture. What does Jesus do? Jesus sits down and the people love what he's saying. The people are saying, that's right. This is, is this not Joseph's son? As a matter of fact, it says the people are marveling at the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. They're proud of him. He's their hometown guy coming back home. But Jesus knows and anticipates what's going on. And he stands up and says, some of y'all might say, physician, fix yourself, Doctor, come and heal yourself of your own problems because you're going to say what you did in those other communities come and do here in my community. Now, this is typical because if you'll notice in the Gospels, almost every time that people are receiving Jesus well, Jesus knows they don't understand what he's talking about. (laughs) And so Jesus will keep pressing the case until people are offended or outraged or enraged by what it is that he is saying. And that's what happens here. He says, what you expect me to be is to be your kind of tribal God who is going to take all of your expectations that you have for your life and to carry it out. That's what I often expect. I think I've got an agenda. And what prayer is, is for me to tell God what our agenda is for my life and to ask him by his power to accomplish that. That's not prayer. That's idolatry. Jesus says, you want me to come in and to give you all of the things that you want, but you don't even get where the problem is he says, because you think that your problem is sickness and Rome. But I want you to remember that there were all sorts of widows in Israel and God did not heal those widows. He went outside of the borders of Israel and found a Gentile widow. And you believed that There were all sorts of lepers in Israel. God certainly could have healed them, but he went outside of the borders of Israel and healed Naaman the Syrian. Now, you think of all of the paranoia in American culture right now about Syrian refugees. I had a pastor just tell me this week, That he had controversy within his church when they took up an offering for Syrian refugees in Lebanon because people were afraid that somehow some of those Syrians might get into their community. This isn't a Syrian refugee, this is a Syrian soldier for people who are on the border of Syria wanting to come in and destroy them. And he says, God healed him of his leprosy. Jesus here is pointing out to them that the biggest problems they have are not the problems they are aware of. The most dangerous things going on in the culture right now are not the things being debated on Facebook. The most dangerous things going on in the culture right now are the things that are not debated at all because we do not ever even think about them because they seem normal to us. Jesus tells us that if the Word of God... If the kingdom of God is going to confront a culture, whether that's a culture of a family around a dining room table or whether it's a culture within a congregation or a culture within a city or a culture within a nation, that is going to have to be confronted with friendly fire first. Now, we want to do the opposite of what the Scripture tells us to do. What we want to do is to lambaste the sins of people on the outside and to turn a blind eye to the sins within our own selves. We want to do the exact reverse of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the people here in this synagogue would have loved that. If Jesus had come in and denounced Rome, they would have applauded him. If Jesus would have come in and would have denounced Jerusalem for not paying enough attention to Nazareth, they would have loved that. But when Jesus comes in and says, the problem is that you are captive to the very things that you criticize, that's when it becomes painful. You have a lot of Christians who believe that they are culture warriors. And what they mean by culture warriors is that they are angry at other people's sins. While at the same time, you have an American church crippled by pornography, crippled by racism, crippled by sins all underneath the surface. And the easiest thing in the world is to say, thank you, God, that I am not like those people who are on the outside of the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus addresses them right where they are and says, I am speaking to you of a kingdom of God that doesn't just confront the people you consider to be your enemies, it confronts you. That's how he engages the culture. And then notice, finally here, he advances here the mission. This, this story, this part of the scripture doesn't end the way that I want it to end. I am a recovering idolater. And one of the ways that my idolatry manifests itself is that sometimes the scripture frustrates me. Because it isn't written the way I would write it. I wouldn't write this this way. I would have this ending when the people are taking Jesus up to the cliff to throw him over because they're so outraged. I would have Jesus levitate, burst into light, shoot ray beams out of his fingers, and say, How do you like me now? That's what I would like. But Jesus doesn't do that, he slips away and passes through their midst. That sounds like cowardice. That sounds like somebody who's walking away from a fight. No. Jesus is not walking away from anything. Jesus is walking toward something. He's walking toward the cross. Jesus is not willing to engage in the argument here about whether or not he is an embarrassment to his hometown. Because Jesus' agenda is seeing to it that your sins and my sins are atoned for through the blood that he will offer at the place of the skull. That's where he is headed. He is defined by the mission. If we are going to exist in a culture like this, we are going to have to be the people who are on mission with Christ which means that we keep at the forefront the word of the cross more than we keep at the forefront whether or not we are embarrassed There was a study that was done a few years ago Colorado State University about road rage How can you tell whether or not somebody's going to get violent behind the wheel if they get upset and they found out you cannot predict that on the basis of the age of the driver. You can't predict it on the basis of the socioeconomic situation of the driver. You can't predict it on the basis of the kind of car or the expensiveness of the car. There's only one predictor for road rage, and that was bumper stickers. It didn't matter what the bumper stickers say. Doesn't matter if it says practice random acts of kindness or my kid can beat up your honor student. <laughs> Jesus saves or legalize pot. No difference at all. The only predictor is the more bumper stickers on a car, the more likely this person is to engage in road rage. And they speculated that the reason for that is because nobody puts a bumper sticker on his or her car in order to persuade somebody. You put a bumper sticker on your car in order to tell other people, I'm the kind of person who wants you to know who I support for office or what I believe about gun control or what I believe about uh, religion or whatever the issue is. And that person who needs to express himself to total strangers is the same kind of person who's likely to be so offended that he or she can lose it a lot of what we believe is engaging the culture around us is really just bumper sticker self-expression. We want people to know where we stand. And when people suggest that we're stupid or we're evil, we become outraged and angry. Jesus doesn't care if they think he's stupid. Jesus doesn't care if they think he's evil. Jesus wants to see them reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through the blood of the cross. If you and I see the people who even are the most hostile toward us as our future potential brothers and sisters in Christ... That the person who is the most hostile to me right now might be the one who will lead my children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren to Christ. That's going to change and transform my attitude toward those people. What we must be are the kind of people who speak not only what Jesus says, but also do it in the way that Jesus does it, who speak it with the accent that comes from Jesus' voice, which is an accent that speaks with invitation and with kindness, even toward those who are yet Sinners, As a matter of fact, especially toward those who are yet sinners and unreconciled to God. And that means that if we do that, we are going to be increasingly in the years to come distinct. Increasingly strange. Increasingly seen as freakish. That is not anything to fear. That is where the power of the gospel is. A couple years ago I went on a lesbian radio talk show in San Francisco. Cuz she said, "I want to have you on to talk about what Christians believe about marriage and sexuality." She said, "I won't take callers cuz that would be bad for you." <laughs> so, went on and we just had this conversation about what Christians believe about marriage, what Christians believe about sexuality. And at the break, she said, I just have to tell you, I don't know anybody who believes the stuff that you believe about marriage and sexuality. She says, as a matter of fact, she said, if I know somebody who's been on maybe three or four dates and hasn't had sex, I'm not gonna assume this is somebody who has any kind of moral conviction. I'm gonna assume this is somebody who has a deep psychological problem. She said, so I just don't think you know how strange the things that you all believe uh, can sound to someone like me. I said, well, I think I do because it's always been a hard teaching from the very beginning. I said, but even beyond that, what I want you to know, however strange you think our views on marriage and sexuality are, we believe stranger things than that. we believe that a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. That's strange. Jesus doesn't run from the strangeness. He doesn't run from the distinctiveness. He turns and announces a vision of the future totally different different both from Rome and from that synagogue in Nazareth. He hits at all of the cultural patterns both in Rome and in that little synagogue in Nazareth that take us away from what is normal in the kingdom of God. And he drives himself and everyone who follows after him toward the mission of the cross that does not speak to the outside world, you kids get off of my lawn, but speaks to the outside world, prepare for the way, for the coming of the Lord and come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. If we do that, And if we follow in that way, then the culture around us, as it increasingly secularizes, will find that odd and strange and maybe even scary. We shouldn't shrink back. We should say with conviction and with kindness, we believe even stranger things than that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room. Some of them have people in their lives right now who are still walking according to the pattern of this age. Lord, I pray that you would enable them to do spiritual warfare. Lord, I pray that you would enable them to be able to speak the kingdom of God, that you would enable them to be able to press that persuasively into the lives of people and cultures who don't receive it, that you would give them a vision of the gospel that would enable them to move forward with truth and with grace, with conviction and with kindness. And I pray, Father, that you would give us congregations that would be able not simply to speak about the kingdom of God, but would be able to model it in the way that we love each other, in the way that we forgive each other, in the way that we live lives together with each other. Lord, would you do that through your spirit so that we are able to announce what matters and who matters, that we can announce to the culture around us of the spirit that has come and has given us the freedom to announce good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, that we can announce the year of the Lord's favor.